Why not just take the risk and do a short cadenza that you've made up on your own? Why not communicate to the audience that this is gonna happen? Why not add that element of excitement that must have happened back then? Hi, I'm Sean Perrin, and you're listening to the Clarinet Podcast, the show for clarinetists looking for in-depth career accelerating conversations about all that's neat for clarinet. In today's interview, I'm joined by Dr. Nancy Williams, who is a leadership and life coach, clarinetist, music educator, and author of a new book called Woodwind Improvisatory Techniques of the Classical Era. Before we get started today, I'd like to thank our season sponsors, Legere Reads and Bakun Musical Services, for making today's show possible. The new Bakun Q-Series clarinet features a completely redesigned bore inspired by the Bakun Custom Series clarinets. This means you can play and perform like the pros, but for less. Use code CLARINET at bakunmusical.com to save 10% on your entire purchase and try the Bakun Q-Series or Protégé clarinet risk-free for 30 days. Just pay the return shipping if you aren't fully satisfied. Shop now at bakunmusical.com and use code CLARINET at checkout. Imagine a read that lets you focus on your music, lasts for months instead of days, and even saves you money in the long run. It's all possible with Legere Reads, the world's leading synthetic read brand made right here in Canada. The European cut read is preferred by Legere artists all over the world, including Eddie Daniels, David Schifrin, Carter Giuffredi, and many others. It offers a warm, clean sound with a great ease of articulation and is now available for E-flat, B-flat, and the bass clarinet. Learn more at your local music store. Or you can now save 10% on your Legere reads with code CLARINET at checkout at Legere.com. That's L-E-G-E-R-E dot com. Dr. Nancy Williams is coming to us today from Rapid City, South Dakota, where I'm told we can actually see Mount Rushmore from her front porch. Is that true? Yeah, it has to be a clear day. We're about (laughs) 20 miles away as the crow flies. But yeah. That sounds amazing. It's one of those things that, you know, I've always wanted to see in my life. And uh, it's so funny to think that there's people just, you know, a stone's throw away of all these great monuments and interesting things in the world. <laughs> so it's kind of cool. You know, I can see Banff, the mountains from from my house, and many people travel all over the world for that, too. So I guess uh, everywhere has got something of interest. But uh, so we're here today. This is going to be round one of a two part conversation. Today, we're going to focus on your new book. And then next time, uh, listeners, just so you're aware, we're going to come back and loop back and talk about some of the other interesting things that uh, Dr. Nancy Williams does. But uh, let's start off today's conversation. If you could just give me a quick introduction and the audience into your life as a clarinetist and musician and so we can get to know you a little bit. Uh, Yeah, well, first of all, thank you for having me on the podcast. Uh, You're very gracious. So I I have a slash career and am juggling several things. I actually graduated with my doctorate in clarinet performance December of 2019. Oh, the timing. Yeah, yeah. And so it's been interesting navigating those waters. And I I teach here and um, perform and then... Later in my career, well, I, I, I started Clarinet Madness, the clarinet choir is a community clarinet choir, and started arranging for clarinet choir. And then a colleague of mine asked me if I composed. I happened to be in grad school at the time. And I said, sure, and signed up for composition classes the next day. <laughs> <laughs> and so that started like that, that area of my slash career. And then uh, when the pandemic hit, yeah, I was looking for a way to be... Uh, meaningful and relevant in a relatively geographically isolated area. So, you know, I went to get my doctorate originally to teach 
at a higher education institution, which I knew wasn't going to be possible in this area. Uh, and then circumstances kind of didn't allow me to look for that. And um, so I was like, what do I do in the pandemic when I can't perform? And I remembered why I got into music education in the beginning, which was to inspire awareness and empowerment so that others can be agents of positive change in the world. And music was how I did that. And so I was like, okay, I, I can do this in other ways. And that's how the leadership and life coaching came about. And my book, which is a pedagogy method about improvisatory techniques, came about during that time as a compilation of all the work that I had done in grad school on the subject, because I kind of went down the rabbit hole. <laughs> and it is actually not what my dissertation was about at all. So you mentioned a really interesting story at the beginning of the book about how you sort of encountered this classical improv at, this, at, the, uh, at the start. Do you want to talk about that a little bit? Like your first experience encountering classical improvisation? My, my first experience was when I was getting my master's and I had a multiple woodwind thing going on. And my oboe teacher said, why don't you go ahead and add some ornaments the second time on the repeat in uh, whatever, I think it was the Marcello Concerto. And uh, at that time, I didn't even realize I was looking at performance practice. I thought it was just like a separate oboe thing <laughs> from the Baroque. I had no idea it had any implications for me. Um, and then later, when I was getting my doctorate in my, my classical seminar, I wanted to know how to interpret all these classical ornamentation symbols that I'd seen when I was playing in quartets and things like that. And um, I, I, I felt like I really should know how to interpret these. And I was really confused as, as to the grace note thing, right? Like, why do some of them have lines? Why don't they? Why are some of them on the beat? Why are some of them not? And so that's what started me going down the whole performance practice rabbit hole and realizing the ramifications for that in classical music. And realizing that because I also have a jazz background, I was in a unique position to start helping my colleagues and my students learn how to incorporate this into their music because uh, you, so many classical musicians are afraid of pay, playing what's not on the page. You know, we haven't been taught to improvise. And in the jazz tradition, uh, you're, you start out improvising when you're first playing in jazz. It's part of the culture, and it was part of the culture in the classical period. And to have these expectations in higher education that we can perform a cadenza, that we can write our own cadenzas and, and play it in an a improvisatory manner, or even try to improvise our cadenzas and have them be good, when we're just starting to do that, just just blew my mind as an educator. I'm like, that's not how improv improvisation works. And so I understood why it, it is such a scary, a scary type of area to go into. But one, once I understood like the culture of the classical period, I thought that we as performers really needed to step up and, and embrace that more. Yeah, I think that you raise an interesting point as far as the culture. I mean, I think that this sort of division between uh, classical and 
let's say popular or more kind of folk music. I'm not sure it was there so strongly before and people would learn different techniques of improvisation on the classical side for sure. I mean, this is where all the notions of cadenzas and ornaments and all these things came from, not to mention long before that with figured bass and a bunch of other different techniques, you know? So I'm wondering, like, do you make a distinction in your mind between uh, improvisation and reading from the paper, or is it all just kind of music and two sides to the same coin? Oh, that's such a good question, because music isn't what's on the page, right? Yeah. Yeah, it's what yeah. goes in our ears, I guess. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and it, it's in, it's inside of us. We bring it out. Music, the written notation is how um, the composer in, it, it tries to convey his intention. You know, I think that um, that that philosophy has changed over time. You know, in the Baroque period, which clarinetists don't come from, and and I think other instrumentalists get a better idea of that philosophy of the performer helping to complete the piece because in the baroque piece composers uh wrote more of an outline it was much more sparse and there was so much more expected of performers you know i related it a lot to jazz and one of the things that uh i found really compelling was how it how it could vary from nationality to nationality and region to region and um, I remember stories when I was growing up because my grandpa actually had a dance band in the 30s and 40s. And I remember how he would say that people would drive between all these small towns in the Midwest to hear certain bands perform a certain piece because they liked the way that they played it. And in jazz, you have a lot more freedom with how you interpret a piece, it can be a lot faster. There's fast versions, slow versions. You can swing it or not. There's, it's, it's. Uh, you can have characteristic pieces that identify like your jazz ensemble. I, so the romantic in me um, was like, oh yeah, like I could totally see that in the classical period, going to different performances of solo clarinet work to hear different interpretations and like I you know I don't know if that's true or not but I like the rom the romanticist in me just really liked that idea of how personal it was I think it's probably very true because I even think about when I was obsessed with Glenn Gould um well maybe I still am but back in university I was <clears throat> obsessively listening to different people playing the Goldberg variations and I, w I remember being fascinated because I really loved Glenn Gould's interpretation and the originality and honestly how slow it was and <laughs> you could take you know take a different sense from the music but I remember listening to a version by Rosalind Turek who died a few years ago and she was fantastic in her own way but it was just so different I couldn't believe I was listening to the same piece so I think your idea of kind of like dialects if you will of improvisation and ornamentation um, they probably go too far sometimes maybe ornamentation syndrome like you said a minute ago <laughs> but uh but um, I think that can be done, you know, different ways by different people. Do you, I guess we were talking a little bit about the two sides of the coin. And, and the reason I kind of asked that was because I had a really great professor in university. Um, but, but one thing he said one day I didn't really agree with is he, he called jazz ear music and classical eye music. And I guess I didn't like that because it seemed a little disparaging towards both at the same time in a way. Almost like jazzers can't read and classical people can't improvise. But... At the same time, I think that for many players, that's not wrong, mm -hmm. you know? Mm -hmm. So how do we start to bridge the gap and where does your book sit in that uh, pedagogy? And I mean, even enlightening the teachers who are going to be needing to teach this. 
that's a problem I was looking to solve. Um, and when I started my career as a band director, my first job was actually K through 12 and I taught general music. And so I knew how to introduce improvisation in a very basic way and how to, to train the ear. Um, and, you know, we do, we do that through aural skills, but we don't really do that with our instrument in our hands so much. And so I took what I knew about teaching general music and incorporated it as well in a way that allows applied lesson instructors, private teachers to start incorporating it at the very beginning with their students in lessons with their instrument in just a few minutes every lesson. Like it's, it's not a huge drawn out complicated thing. It's just a, a small amount of time and I created um, a pedagogy based on that for that's part of the book. So part of the book is an aural skills trainer that helps teachers and um, you know more advanced students can use this to teach themselves as well. And I give other resources to other books um, that can help with um, the, the listening and the performing aspect together that aren't necessarily classically based. Uh, but that, that was part of how I saw we needed to change was a more fundamental understanding of how we teach the next generation coming up. And what I was really surprised in that when I started incorporating this and experimenting with it in my own private studio is how many other aspects of their playing improved just because they were listening so much more carefully and tone and intonation and musicality um, blossomed, which I kind of expected, like the, the scientific, the, the experiments that had done before, been before that I, that I was researching had said that those were long-term benefits. I was super shocked at how quickly those benefits happened. And so that's how I chose to address that situation. And uh, you know, I call my colleagues to start incorporating aural skills with the instrument into their lessons as well, even if they're not using my book, because music isn't just on the page. Even if you're only playing what's written in ink, that's not where music comes from. And the more we learn to open our ears, the more we're going to be uh, more musical and the more we're going to get the benefits of all these ancillary aspects of improvisation. Well, I definitely think it's more intertwined than people realize. I mean, even making the decision to, let's say, end a note a little early or hold it a little longer or to swell or not swell a note or to phrase a little differently than what's on the paper. I mean, these are imp improvisatory choices, you know, and I remember I was a fairly latecomer to improvisation in a way, but but maybe not. It just was kind of in my head, I think. But I took some uh, improvisation lessons to go with a, a CD project that I recorded, which recently turned like six or seven years old, which is hard to believe it was that long ago now. But but uh, anyway, I remember that it gave me such freedom because we inserted these sections of improvisation into the pieces and part of that went on the CD. And uh, But just the freedom to play that and sort of be lost in this free time and then come back at a place where we knew it was coming up was very liberating in a way. Do, do people find that that's a common experience of feeling liberated from the paper? Oh, you know, I haven't really 
haven't really asked that question. For for me in my studio, it's more about just getting them over over the fear. And so I would think that would be. I recall I had a student once, oh, I think it was the the Stamets, and I just wanted them to lead into uh, the theme coming in because it was kind of a naked spot there. And I couldn't even get them to do like three or four notes leading into that theme because they were just so petrified. Really? Um, they just didn't want to even do anything yeah. that wasn't there? Yeah. yeah. Sorry, I wonder if some of this sometimes, though, comes from teachers who are, are very rigid or... Um, I don't really know what the word is, but I mean, I remember one time I had a, a piano teacher and I was doing some piece, maybe just by Chopin. I'm, I'm not a great pianist, but it was some very simple piece of some sort. And uh, it was the first time I nailed it. And I got to the end and I added a little arpeggio or something and just finished it off with a different kind of ending. And she was horrified. She said, oh, that's like if a chef were to take a cup of soup and spit in it. I mean, you could still eat the rest of the soup, but you never would want to like it's the whole soup is ruined. And I was like, what? I mean, I'm pretty sure Chopin improvised this piece <laughs> and then, you know, in his head and then wrote it. Like, how do you think it came to him just like from the sky and straight onto the paper? Like, no, he he can play the piano literally and come up with these ideas and then put them on paper. Why can't I add my own ending if I feel like it right now? <laughs> you know, and it, it really I could see to a kid that would be so jarring and, and, and disturbing, you know. But to be fair, I mean, a lot of piano competitions and things, you're preparing a very exact, repeatable consumable version of a piece and there's no room for maybe I don't know what the word would be but fluff like that you know at the end you know <laughs> well, you know and that was the ultimate controversy which caused it to come out of favor with the rising of the middle class and more people buying instruments having time to practice them that weren't necessarily educated in the vein that musicians before them had been educated didn't have that experience and exposure um and um performers started not liking what they were doing with their improvisatory techniques, not liking what they were adding to their music. And so it started to come out of favor. So you mean composers didn't like what performers were adding? Oh, sorry. Yeah. Comp composers didn't like what, what performers were doing. Uh, but you know, it's funny cause there's that range of time, like 1800 to 1825, let's see where, you could you could do it if you were good like some composers i i, I remember weber was one and he was uh had written this letter to someone about how offended he was by what someone had done to uh, something he'd written and then <laughs> in a different letter and in the same time frame he had written about a soprano soloist who had done some improvisatory things with his, in within one of his arias and he was writing it just how tasteful it was and how much he loved what she was doing. Well, you know, I think that some of these purists, it's really, it's really crazy to me because they, they pick and choose what they worry about. I mean, I've heard many, many arguments about, you know, Glenn Gould, for example, again, to go back to him and just his interpretation was too out there. It was this, it was that, but others will say it's okay because he's a genius, but, but don't you try, <laughs> you know, don't you make your own version of Mozart because, because you're not a genius and, Who's to say, <laughs> you know? Um, so how do you feel about that? Like, this is something that's, you said so yourself. Like, if you were good, you could do it. But if not... That's That was the jazz component that I draw on. Because when you're starting playing in jazz band as a beginner, let's say seventh and eighth grade is your first experience, and you have a little solo, an improvised solo, 
the audience's expectations are appropriate for one because they can see you're small and <laughs> you haven't been playing very long and then so like you play the solo and it may not be great but everybody's just so darn excited that you're doing it um, and it's amazing and it propels you in this way to experience experiment more and do it more and we we don't get that in the in the classical arena you know by the time you're adding in uh ornamentations on your own or your own cadenzas or filling in between the notes you know you're expected to be really good at it like it has to sound good because the age you're at that you're doing that you've already had all this experience right so people's expectations are are too high in my opinion and we need to we need to give clarinetists permission to fail we need to give them permission to to make mistakes and to keep doing it and and learn that way instead of necessarily learning with their brain well that whole to fail the permission to fail thing is so important and i bet you talk about that with your imposter syndrome stuff which we'll go into next time but but um i mean even me over the pandemic one of the things i was doing was was taking some guitar lessons i've always wanted to get better and, and even write some of my own songs and uh I think the improvisation training kind of gave me the confidence to do some of that, but I've been going to an open mic night near my house and I haven't played yet, <laughs> but I have drummed along with some other people who are playing and I've been there for a few weeks. And a couple of weeks ago, one of the guys was finally like, look, just bring your guitar and play your songs. Like we're all doing it. Nobody cares. And, uh, you know, nobody knows your songs. No so one even, nobody knows if he made a mistake. Right. And I thought that was kind of an interesting statement too. So I think that sometimes people, when they're improvising or making something up or trying to have a new idea, they don't realize that, it's not like someone's sitting there with a, with a check mark waiting to give them a big X, or sorry, with a pencil waiting to give them a big X when they make a mistake. It's not really like that, <laughs> you know? It, and it's so much more engaging for audiences. I remember the first concert I gave in which I incorporated improvisatory techniques into a solo. And I decided to clue the audience in because I, I mean, I wrote this book and I started on my own journey along with the book, with improvisation. And, and I'll, although I have this jazz component and improvisational experience there, it's very different from what goes on in a classical improvisation. It's, it's much more structured. And so it really is learning from scratch. And so I, what I'm trying to say is like, I'm not awesome at this. Mm -hmm. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not doing YouTube videos of me like doing doing this um, professionally, uh, but I I figured I should you know put my money where my mouth is and start incorporating it uh, in my own performances. And I was surprised pleasantly by how much more of a meaningful performance that was. And I think I even got a standing ovation because I told the audience what I was going to do and that I wasn't awesome at it yet. And that, but yet, you know, I had done this research and felt like it was something that I felt compelled to do to be, to honor the zeitgeist of the moment. Like this is what was going on in the classical world. And they, they loved it. They ate it up. It was so powerful and uh, so much more powerful than any other time I'd performed a classical solo before that. 
What do you think of bridging the gap kind of with pieces like uh, In Sea by Terry Riley or Le Mouton de Panurge by uh, Zhevsky? These pieces that have like a, a written notated element, but a lot of aleatory and improvisation to interpret those elements. Like In Sea, if you've never played it before, is, is I think it's 53 boxes or something of little musical snippets that you are called upon to interpret in various ways. And no performance is ever even similar remotely. Um, and, uh, but that's, I have found an interesting way to kind of, you know, get people used to the idea of trading back and forth, call and response, imitation, um, a lot of the things you talk about in the book. Yeah, I think it's wonderful. Even just the emotional component, right, of being able to let go of having to be perfect with what's written on the page. Yeah being able to add your own decisions and be a part of the composition in that way is very much in, you know, the spirit of the classical period. And uh, I think it, I think it's empowering. Yeah. I, you have to put yourself out there to play that piece and like, yeah. you know, jump in at the moments when you know someone else is not, if you feel like it. So have you played the, the NC? I have. Yeah. yeah. It's a really, really cool piece. So it is. And it's not that difficult. No. Well, the tough thing about it is it's all in C. So like if you're a transposing instrument, you've got to transpose the score. But I've seen versions where it's written out in various keys for band instruments, um, because I think that you kind of have to do that. If you're going to take a student to the piece and have them learn to kind of improvise in an aleatoric way, um, it's a little much to also call upon them to sight transpose into their, you know, their sounding pitches or whatever. Um, well, and I guess that judgment of easy came from me as having all a little bit of anxiety about it because I'd heard about it a lot longer than before I played it. So I had all these expectations. It was a formative piece. And, um, and I was, I was like, this is accessible. Like it is, but it's one of those interesting things because to me, I remember the first time I played it, it was almost like a, a party piece. Um, I can't remember where we did it, but it was almost somewhere just at the university, 30 people got together and just, sat down, played through it once, and that was it. I was like, oh, that was kind of fun. But the second time I remember doing it was a, it was a piece of study in a new music class that I had. And like we focused on each each uh, cell and like different ways to interpret it and like focus on listening around the room and, okay, the saxophone's doing it in that style. I mean, you can choose to do it in a different style, but if you do it in a similar way, it becomes this cool kind of echoey effect, you know? And... Um, just the idea of, of even rehearsing sections as a group to say, okay, let's try it like this. Let's try it like that. And before you know it, you've got kind of a rep- repertoire of ideas to go to during the, the concert, which is kind of cool. So, but uh, anyway, yeah, if you've never checked it out, I would highly recommend trying to play in C, looking into different versions. My favorite recording is not the original. Um, I find it to be too kind of upbeat and whatever, but <laughs> poppy maybe, I don't know. It, it's cool, but um, I really love the Procurama Percussion Ensemble, I think is what it's called with the Hilliard Ensemble. It's amazing. Really, With a choir, of all things. It's really cool. Well, and I, I love, I forget the word that you used, but, but how you had like this bank of ideas to draw from. Repertoire, maybe. <laughs> and that was another thing that struck me with my research is how um, I, I call them pres- prescribed, oh shoot, I forget what I call them. <laughs> That's okay. <This> <laughs> prescribed diminutions. There we go. Um, in that, it, but I liken them to like the, the licks that jazz players learn ahead of time. 
and the things that they practice in case they get in trouble. So they also have this like bank of ideas to draw in on and how they were doing that in the classical period also. And um, I, I just, I found that fascinating. So let's talk about some of that as far as the different repertoire people people use. And I like your book is laid out in a way that you're actually going through various types of, um, of uh, levels almost, improvisation levels. And I think that those are adding to the repertoire as you go. So you've got imitation, call and response, uh, various patterns, harmonizing, ornaments, cadenzas. Like you've kind of put it all out in a really interesting sort of leveled way. But I have to say it's interesting to me because I'm a, I have a three-year-old and a six-month-old. And um, I noticed with this, a lot of the ways that you teach someone language are the ways that you're talking to teach music. Because like even with my six-month-old, we start off right now by she makes a sound, I'll do the same one and see if she'll do it again. I'll try and teach her some other sound and she can copy. But my older child, like it's more about strings of, of words or saying something, maybe it's a little funny that catches her off guard, see if she's picking up on it kind of thing, you know. But I, I see a lot of that in this music training. So first of all, let's go through some of those ideas and things we can add to our repertoire and maybe maybe why but but also relation to other kind of learning styles and languages oh yeah well music is a language right and yeah so that was the area that stemmed from my general music experience and when we're introducing pitches new pitches and how to correlate them with the pitches that we already know uh, and how to string together notes into melodies and call and response and and all of those things i had a a very you know you have to build on what you know that's that's why i wrote it that way i'm like you, you can't expect students to do this if they haven't done this first yeah just sit down and play a cadenza do it now <laughs> right yeah. yeah like and one of the funny things is that one of the people that beta tested my uh my book was really adamant about not including um, the harmonizing part. He's like, that's, that's just way too difficult. Like you really should be going in there and figuring out the chord structure. And I'm like, that is the opposite of what I'm going for. <laughs> you know, the whole point is to let's open up our ears and start making decisions with our ears instead of. Oh, I see with, what you're saying. Yeah. 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 Uh, yeah. yeah. And so, and I'm not like diminishing anyone uh, who is going through and figuring out the chord structure to help them with imp improvisation that's that's not what i'm doing but in the aural skills builder part um it was the antithesis antithesis <laughs> yes yes of of um what i was going for and uh his argument is that it was just too difficult he was like i have college students that can't do this and my answer was well yeah because they haven't done the stuff before it and also, I can go and get you two middle school girls in choir that can do this. Yeah, that's interesting. I think it's a perspective a bit based on you're discussing kind of just hearing where a harmony could go. And I mean, everyone can do this, I think, if they try. But maybe what he's thinking more is like to do it, you know, quote, properly <laughs> in some kind of way that might be fitting with the, the key. Like, is that what he means? Maybe I'm not sure. His was, yeah, his, his was more of a, this just seems far too difficult to include in there. Um, and his experience was as a um, professional orchestral musician. 
and the types of students that were coming to him. And my experience was um, as a more comprehensive, that's not the right word, but, but you know, I, I've, I'd been teaching students and teaching them how to do this, younger students that didn't come from that type of rigid environment that often orchestral students are trained in. I see what you're saying. So I, th I thought he was coming at it from like a jazz perspective of trying to like properly harmonize. And, and in that, I guess I could sort of see that perspective, but, but you're totally right because I bet if you called on half of college students to play happy birthday, they couldn't do it. <laughs> you know, I, I wonder what that number really is, but um, you know, just name a folk tune and, and can you play, you know, Ode to Joy and all the keys? I mean, I don't know, maybe they can't. A lot of people don't, you know, um, but I like to actually when I do startup workshops now with kids just to kind of get off the rails a little bit. But I actually stay away from the page entirely. I just get them to put the music stand behind their chair because I've got to see what they're doing. And then by the end of the session, I teach them how to play, you know, a few folk tunes like, let's say, Ode to Joy and uh, a couple others that are easy in the moment, um, just without the burden of kind of also trying to learn where the notes are on the staff because they don't really I find need it. And they're a little bit better suited to just, okay, listen, am I going up or am I going down? Like, just move your fingers in that order. I mean, if you don't know, try it again next time. We're going to repeat it like 20 times. So it's not really have to get it first time kind of thing, you know. Um, but I find that, that kids are a little more receptive to that at first. And then if you add the music in after that, it kind of is like, okay, that is the stuff I was just doing. And that's what it looks like on the paper. Instead of let's turn these abstract dots into sounds with my fingers, <laughs> you know? Right. And, and, you know, that's a, a music education attribute there, the sound before sight that I do. It, I don't have very many beginners anymore, but when I was teaching beginners, you know, we, we didn't do anything with the book open at first. And I was teaching them, or like when I teach 12s, you know, they don't, they don't know what those note, lo notes look like on the staff before they're playing them. They're just doing them in this exercise. Yeah, yeah. And so that's, yeah, that's a, a, a foundation of educational premise. So as we go on with the various levels of, of improv, and you're, you're going into detail in your book about all of them, um, is there one in particular that kind of surprised you as far as, something that we even are doing i mean you talk about the ornaments i mean there's so many ways to interpret various ornaments maybe that'd be a good place to start just like the surprising knowledge within that one section you yeah. know what i mean well for me i i was such a noob i i didn't even realize that ornaments were part of improvisatory structures at all um and i think my first like real aha moment was that when I found out that some composers would uh, put in a trill marking, but the expectation was that you would add whatever you wanted there. Oh. And I was like, wait, wait, what? I mean, the fact that that it really sunk in then that it really was improvisatory. It was like, I think that you should put an ornament here. And so I'm going to put this like little trill sign. But the understanding is that you're going to do what you think is best. I just think there should be an ornament there or composers who made up their own ornaments. But, and the, the difference in interpretations between various cultures, that, that was part of why I wanted to dig deeper when I was first researching into, because I started with, I, I feel like I really should know 
how to realize these ornaments, how to how to perform these, and I should understand why they are that way. And then I found out that there were different traditions and different nationalities, and even regionally, or even from composer to composer, and I was completely overwhelmed. It is crazy. It's, it's crazy to think about, too, how much of this was passed on. And actually, maybe this is why it's no longer passed on in the same way now that I think about this, but... Um, you know, music used to be something that you learned only by listening and playing in reality. I mean, what I mean by that is like there was no recordings, <laughs> you know, to, to take home and, and listen to back in those days. So if you want to teach someone a technique, you had to show them, you know, or, or teach them like more literally how to do it, you know, or people would watch and see how it was done versus the paper maybe. But, but now, you know, you put on these CDs of whatever interpretation of music from you know, two or 300 years ago. And, and, and uh, there's never really that kind of study of the ornaments or passing them on orally and, and hearing what they look like, <laughs> you know, if that makes sense. And, but do you think some of it's even lost to time? Like, do we really know what Bach was doing with all those ornaments or is it just some of them are guessing? <laughs> so possibly Bach might be the worst example. <laughs> the worst example, okay, yeah. <laughs> because he was very rigid. He, he really was very specific with his ornamentation. But for for the culture in general, I mean, the amount of ornaments they use, just the sheer number of different types, um, the vast majority has been far forgotten. I mean, what we have left over is just a small pittance. It's too bad in many ways, but I guess also, what can we do about it? There was no recording back then or, or other means to... But I find that actually really liberating. And that's when my feelings of overwhelm really took a turn because I was like, there are no recordings. Ah, yes. <laughs> <laughs> we don't have to worry about what the composer thinks anymore. <laughs> and also just like under, understanding the zeitgeist and the spirit of the times and the cultural expectations. Um, I, I felt compelled as a musician to be true to that. And that mission overcame my fear of being judged critically. Cause I mean, that's, let's be realistic. That's one of the main reasons people don't do it is they're afraid that they're going to be told it's wrong or, you know, somebody doesn't like it. And these somebodies are a lot of times in positions of power that are keeping them from winning things or, or, and, um, getting good scores. Uh, and so that overcame my whole fear of the haters was I, f I really felt like I have an ob obligation to be true to the culture of the day. You know, it's, it's very, that's very true. The last thing you say there, because I was saying even at the beginning of this conversation, how my teacher didn't like my little ornament at the end of my piece. But but you're right. People in positions of power, let's say at a competition or an audition or whatever. I mean, they if they don't like it, it doesn't fly. And so I think we've got music kind of into this sort of rigid box these days where if you play the piece any way but the original way, it really won't be accepted. And that's kind of really weird to me because you think that we'd reward a level of musical creativity or interest or um, innovation like we do with other industries or career paths you know you know I wonder if some of that has to do with like the pedestal that we put the great composers on and that has been my great journey uh, as a musicologist has just been discovering the humanity of 
of the people that we treated as gods, you know, and they are, they're, they're amazingly skilled people, um, but they're humans and they were part of a, a living, breathing culture and embracing their humanity has given me more respect for them as opposed to less. I was talking to Charlie Nydick about this uh, a couple years ago now. Um, he was saying they had a performance. Um, I think it was him. They had a performance, but then along with the performance, they were serving like food from the era to go along with it. And I thought that was so cool. And uh, I was joking about that with a, another artist who came on recently, Kristen Mather de Andrade. And she was on here and she was talking about playing, I think it was Brazilian music. And uh, same thing. She was discussing how her husband's Brazilian and she would eat this food and listen to this music and interpret this music and understand the culture more. And I was like, we need to do more of that. <laughs> yeah, I would pay for that. Absolutely. Yeah, what a cool experience, right? Yeah. Come eat and, you know. 17th 18th century style or whatever and listen to yeah. pieces from the era that'd be so cool music's a reflection of culture which is which is why i think you know we're called to something more now as we as we know better uh, ironically what happened when the research first started in this um was that the people that were doing it were very rigid musicologists and tried to quantify and qualify everything and that's what a lot of older generations of performers grew up believing. And a lot of that has since been debunked. It was much freer than that. They added their own, their own rose-colored glasses and, and made it more what they wanted to as opposed to what it was. Yeah, which is a really interesting kind of perspective that we probably have shaded a lot of history with if you think about it. <laughs> well, and we can never be completely accurate because we have the Romantic era. You know, we, we see everything through romantic eyes because that's part of our history and it wasn't a part of theirs. Yeah, it's sometimes interesting to think about, let's say, the Baroque era. Think about all the music those people had not heard or would never hear. It's so it's all sad in a way, um, but they didn't know any of these pieces. So what they had was this music and whatever came before it, and that was it. <laughs> it's kind of mm -hmm. weird to think about mm -hmm. that way. So, But it changed, like, you, you have to be careful with a lot of... Um, these publications of classical repertoire that are published in modern times because there is that romantic skewing. And so one of the telltale signs is if you have a, a really long and involved cadenza in a classical solo. Yeah, it's probably written in. Yeah, like that's the publisher has probably not done their, their due diligence there. And there's a lot of those out there. And so... What I wanted to do with my book was to say like, hey, we can, it, it, it's in, by no means an all encompassing answer to everything, but it gives the basis to get started in this and be informed so that you can make those decisions so that you can see like, oh, this isn't indicative of what they really would be doing. And to also like hold people's hands and say like this, I got you. <laughs> like, we'll start at the beginning. If you're afraid of, of, of playing anything off the page, then let's do these aural skill stuff. And then I go into, you know, this is how you first should start, start incorporating it into solos. This is how you should next. And this is like the, in, in a gradients that are acceptable and manageable in a way that's not overwhelming and uh, fearful. You know, you just made me realize that I think my first experience with improv actually was probably the first that many clarinetists have is that I was uh, probably in junior high school. 
maybe high school, but playing an audition for something. And I had a compilation book of different, basically different second movements, which are lyrical, you know. And I think I was playing the Mozart second movement. Um, and I recall there being a written in cadenza. And I didn't realize, like you said, that should be improvised. But I remember getting a more kind of legit version for my university study. And I got to that page and it just said cadenza. And I was like, where's all the music I'm supposed to play? <laughs> you know, and it was kind of a, a so I ended up I don't remember what I ended up doing exactly. But I think I ended up kind of lifting some other cadenza that I liked that was pre-written and having it on another page to turn to at that moment, which looking back was not really correct. Now that I think about it, it's kind of sad. You are not alone, like composer performers in the classical era that were insecure with their cadenza writing did the same thing. They would write it out ahead of hand. Or there were these actually collections of cadenzas yes. that you could purchase. Yeah. 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 And so there were varying abilities. Uh, the, the one thing that mattered most was making it sound like it was improvised. Yeah. Yeah. Which if you're playing someone else's, it's kind of odd to be playing someone else's improvisation trying to reinterpret it so it sounds like an improvisation but it's not because you're scared to improvise <laughs> that's kind right. of a weird but, loop so you know you, when you're actually out in the field of battle when you're performing you have a lot of choices my um what, what i encourage people to do especially because classical cadenzas did not need to be very long at all and you don't need to modulate you, they don't have it doesn't have to be hard so why not why not just take the risk and do a short cadenza that you've made up on your own. Why not communicate to the audience that this is going to happen? Why not add that element of excitement that must have happened back then? Seriously, though, it's true. It's, it's going to accelerate the, sorry, it's going to invigorate the audience and the performer. And I'd rather hear two to four bars of something someone made up than 16 bars lifted out of some cadenza repertoire book, <laughs> you know? Right? Yeah. So it's, it's not about being perfect. It's about being real and in the moment. No, I think that's a great spot to uh, kind of start wrapping it up as far as the conversation about the book. But I want to remind listeners that I'm going to have Dr. Nancy Williams back again to talk more about some of the other uh, interesting things she's focused on in her career. But before we do go... I want to find out where can people get this book? Where can people learn more about what you've done? Oh, uh, it's on my website, drnancywilliams.com, drnancywilliams.com. It's also on Amazon. It's Woodwind Improvisatory Techniques of the Classical Period or Classical Era, uh, a pedagogy method. Uh, and I've included a PDF download version too. There, there's an anthology at the back. So there's a lot of music where you can see what was done. Uh, those prescribed diminutions, like I talked about, those like jazz lick types of things that people would learn ahead of time. Um, and it's, it's, it's all in one place. <laughs> so yeah, head to my website. There's a link to it. It's Woodwind Improv Book on my website at drnancywilliams.com. I love it. Was there anything else you'd like to share on the podcast today before we wrap up? Just, just be brave. Like take those steps. The, it, growth is uncomfortable and scary. And uh, I think it's well worth it if you start incorporating these aspects into your performing of classical literature. I think the payout is worth the pain. 
I love it. Well, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast today. We're going to do a few extra questions for those who are supporting the podcast at clarinet.com slash join. If you want to try and uh, if you want to listen to the extended ad-free version of the podcast as well, you can do this and get a free 30-day trial with code TRYGOLD. That's T-R-Y-G-O-L-D at checkout at clarinet.com slash join. So thank you so much again, Dr. Nancy Williams. And let's do the lightning round questions. Imagine a read that lets you focus on your music, lasts for months instead of days, and even saves you money in the long run. It's all possible with Legere Reads, the world's leading synthetic read brand made right here in Canada. The European cut reads preferred by Legere artists all over the world, including Eddie Daniels, David Schifrin, Crowder Freddy, and many others. It offers a warm, clean sound with a great ease of articulation and is now available for E-flat, B-flat, and the bass clarinet. Learn more at your local music store. Or you can now save 10% on your Legere reads with code CLARENEAT at checkout at Legere.com. That's L-E-G-E-R-E dot com. The new Bakun Q-Series clarinet features a completely redesigned bore inspired by the Bakun Custom Series clarinets. This means you can play and perform like the pros, but for less. Use code CLARENEAT at BakunMusical.com to save 10% on your entire purchase and try the Bakun Q-Series or Protégé clarinet risk-free for 30 days. Just pay the return shipping if you aren't fully satisfied. Shop now at BakunMusical.com and use code CLARENEAT at checkout.